Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As we turn the page on May and embark on a new month, our conversation this morning will preview for you some points of interest over the next few weeks that could influence market activity and outline for you how you should consider your portfolio allocation accordingly. Joining me here on the line for the conversation, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Jason, nice to be with you as always. Welcome back and looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here after a nice, kind of relaxing, but cool, long weekend. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a uh, rough one up here in the Northeast, but it looks like we have some summer weather ahead of us to look forward to starting today, which is great. But uh, Jason, I know we have a lot of things we want to cover today. As I mentioned in my intro, we are closing the books on May. We're turning the chapter and embarking on a new month. So with today being the first of June, Jason, and I know there's a lot we want to get to over the next few weeks or so, but it might be helpful providing some context. What took place over the past month to sort of get us to where we are today in the markets, Jason. What can you recap for us? It was a month that you know, perhaps felt worse than it actually was because um, there was definitely some, some volatility, some choppiness, you know, concerns about inflation that, that have accelerated. Uh, but if we look at the S&P 500, you know, for the whole month, it was up just under 1%, you know, 0.7%, uh, which is, you know, is fine. You know, if you kind of compound that over the whole year, that's not a bad performance. Um, you know, but there was a period of time in the middle of the month uh, when the inflation news for April came out, uh, where we experienced about a 4% drawdown. Uh, so some choppiness, and kind of at the end of it, you know, it maybe felt like we you know, were kind of flat for the month, which was the case. But there were other good sort of signs of performance, you know, outside of the U.S. Uh, you know, European equities were up over 3%. Uh, you know, EM equities up a little bit over 2%. Um, some of this reflects sort of a catch-up trade to, to the U.S., uh, strong performance early in the year. Also, other regions are also now benefiting from so easing of, you know, the worst of the pandemic, certainly in a place like Europe, which was hit with a, a third wave in March and April. Uh, and, you know, certainly in those parts of the world, inflation fears that we're experiencing in the U.S. aren't, you know, nearly as prevalent. Uh, we've also seen, you know, the kind of VIX volatility index, the fear index, uh, you know, rose in the middle of inflation, but now it's declined. And in fact, it's, it's almost at the lows of the kind of the post-pandemic or during this pandemic period. So, you know, clearly equity markets are, are holding up fairly resiliently. We've seen across equity markets, you know, the, the sectors that have performed the best are you know, value and cyclical sectors, like financials, energy materials. They were all up, you know, a little more than 4% in the U.S. Uh, the commodities had a strong month, uh, led by oil, led by precious metals, you know, about 6%. So, you know, if you look at the actual performance for the month, it was kind of consistent with kind of the reflation trade, which we've been, you know, sort of positioned for the month overall. Uh, you know, we did have the higher inflation numbers, but rates by and large were, were relatively flat with a 10 year, you know, being unchanged. So, you know, at the surface level, things looked kind of relatively flat, a little bit more term beneath the surface. It's still sort of the dynamic of, I think, this inflation trade still overall being, you know, the, the dominant driver in the markets, I think, being evident by, uh, what happened beneath the surface headlines. Jason, thank you for recapping for us what may deliver the markets, a performance recap as well, and how we got to where we are today. So as we now pivot and look forward a bit to June, one of the big focuses of this month will be the next FOMC meeting, which will take place over the span of June 15th and June 16th. And investors will be awaiting any signs of the Fed's tapering plans. I know our global chief investment officer, Mark Hafley, talked 
talked about this in the most recent UBS House View Weekly letter, and a number of Fed officials have been making general comments recently about the need to at least start the conversation about tapering. So, Jason, what do you expect to happen at this upcoming FOMC meeting, and what do you think, Jason, the Fed will need to see before the Fed actually begins announcing tapering plans? Well, the answer depends a lot on the data that we get over the next couple of weeks, because the meeting is on the uh, June 15th and 16th, and so the, the actual uh, updated FOMC statement, the press conference, will be on the 16th. So this week, you know, this morning, we will get the, you know, the May ISM number. On Friday, we will get the May jobs number. Um, on the 12th, or sorry, the 10th of the month, we will get the next, uh, the May CPI numbers. So a lot of critical data, particularly on the jobs front and also on the inflation front, which is what the Fed is most focused on. Yeah, depending on how that data plays out, it could, at least at the margins, sort of tweak what the Fed is, is going to do. If we think of what it's sort of likely to come out with, you know, an improvement in jobs, uh, inflation still being at an elevated level, I don't think we're going to see any significant change in, well, actually no change in formal policy. Uh, what we will look for is some, you know, kind of language change perhaps in the FOMC statement, but also in the press conference, you know, after, afterwards with, you know, Fed Chair Jay Powell, you know, indicating what they've discussed. So in the past, they've been adamant about sort of we're not even talking about talking about tapering. Uh, perhaps this month they will indicate that at least they are talking about starting to talk about tapering, which is a small change, but it could be the first sign that at some point later in the summer they can say we are now talking about tapering, perhaps in, so in, in August, with kind of gearing the markets up for some announcement later this year. Uh, other things that could be changed in the you know, in the actual formal statement, be certain words you know, such as, we need to see substantial further progress that maybe along the lines that we need to see, you know, more progress or the economy is kind of progressing well, which would be an indication that they think things are on track. Uh, and we could also see a change in the summary of economic projections for future growth and inflation. And in particular, what the market won't be focused on a lot is the dot plots for when we might get the next first rate hike. Currently, the median expectation among FOMC members is that it won't occur until 2024, but it's tipping or has been moving more towards the first hike being in 2023. And maybe this month we'll actually see that, that take place. So the first hike could be in, you know, at least at some point in 2023. So those are the things that, you know, we could get from the next meeting. Um, in terms of what the Fed would actually need to see before anything announcing, it assumed, I think a lot of the market assumed that we would be getting 1 million jobs per month created throughout the second quarter. And that would continue to summer. So by September timeframe, we would have, 5 million new additional jobs. Uh, at this point in time, that looks like it's going to be on the aggressive side. So the question then becomes like, you know, what does the Fed need to see as long as it's kind of good substantial progress? You know, the actual number may be less than what they were anticipating. Likewise, I think they're expecting inflation sort of to be peaking out around now in the next month or two, then signs of sort of moderation later in the summer. If that doesn't look like it's materializing, again, that could force the Fed to be maybe a little more aggressive. So at the, at the moment, I think it's really, again, still focused on you know, how quickly the labor market can recover. And if it starts to recover as expected and inflation moderates as expected, I think the, the idea that the Fed will look to announce the start of tapering you know, in December to begin early next year still seems reasonable. 
But it's those two key variables that I think at this point it's still pretty unpredictable. They could alter that course at least a little bit. Well, it will be interesting, Jason, to see what kind of market response might be yielded as a result of a more defined timeline as well as wider spread taper talks out of the Fed. So a topic indeed we'll look forward to following up with you on later this month. Now, if we stick with policy, though, move over to the fiscal side of things. If we're backtracking now to late last week, I know the Biden administration announced its budget proposal on Friday, as well as releasing the Green Book, which details its estimates for the costs of initiatives and the revenue it expects to raise from tax increases. So anything new and noteworthy, Jason, about the budget and the Green Book that you can share with us? Yeah, given the timing of when it came out to right before a long weekend, I think you know, might have definitely slipped under the radar for, for most investors. There wasn't anything sub- substantially new uh, that we didn't already have, at least a general understanding of based on what they'd already put out regarding their American Jobs Plan and American Family Plan that was announced uh, back in April. So the, this was more about fleshing out the specific details, giving them actually more precise estimates of, of the cost. So some of the things that were kind of interesting is if you look at the overall set of packages uh, and, what, and the impact on the budget, uh, between the spending plans associated with the Jobs Plan and the Families Plan, uh, what they're forecasting is that the total deficit would increase by $800 billion over 10 years. So not just in one year, but accumulated over 10 years. So if you, you know, do rough math, you know, this is roughly $80 billion a year, which is you know 0.3% of GDP over that time period. Uh, so it actually sort of puts concrete numbers into this, this. They expect the deficit will increase a little bit based on this. Uh, in terms of these specific incremental plans, uh, you know, the, the jobs plan and the families plan, they expect this will raise spending by a total of around $4.4 trillion over 10 years, uh, which is 1.5% of GDP over that time period. And roughly 75% is kind of pure spending or more traditional spending. About 25% is through sort of tax incentives. On the flip side, you know, the tax increases, uh, you know, they're expected to generate revenue around $3.6 trillion. Um, so that gap, that, that's 4.4 to 3.6, that's $800 billion in terms of you know, new deficit spending. Now, this is kind of the proposal. I think we all expect that this is going to be now subject to intense negotiations in Congress. Uh, and it's likely those numbers will be scaled back by half on both the spending and the tax increases. And the risk is probably that it's even more than half as opposed to being greater than, uh, than or, or less than, than half, meaning, you know, the spending could be more around $2 trillion, not, you know, 4.4, and tax increases coming in maybe like, you know, 1.5, between 1 to 1.5 trillion in total. Um, it's more likely that than some numbers that are higher than the midpoints. Uh, what we've seen in terms of, or what we now expect in terms of, you know, moving forward, I think this provides sort of some concrete numbers for then the, the Democrats in the House and the Senate to start to kind of move forward towards a budget reconciliation process. It's possible that Speaker Nancy Pelosi wanted to see these details before actually drafting legislation on a reconciliation bill. Uh, so now that now these details are provided, we can sort of move forward with that. There has been some bipartisan negotiations, but I think that the both sides are, are far enough apart that uh, I think the Democrats are likely to kind of move forward on the reconciliation process. Uh, and the time frame for this is, is still I think in, in, in sort of the October, November time frame or something we think is likely to be passed 
but again, much smaller than it was already proposed. It sounds like there's a lot of runway ahead of us. I know Congress this week is on recess, so when they resume session in roughly a week or so, it'll be interesting to see some next steps and how some of these legislative initiatives begin to play out as we move towards those fall dates to keep in mind. But more we can follow up on, and thank you for that roundup, Jason. So maybe we can pivot over now and talk about the macro calendar. I know a lot of important data points are on deck for both this week as well as next week, and we know how closely investors, as well as the Fed for that matter, are tracking these data points. So we have the latest ISM number being released today, Tuesday. We have the May jobs report coming out this Friday, and then we have the May CPI, Consumer Price Index report, being released on June 10th. So a lot coming up on deck. Jason, what are you expecting from these data releases, and how could markets react to some of these data points? Well, the data will continue to be you know, very strong in terms of you know, economic growth. So for the ISM, you know, it comes out uh, at 10 a.m. this morning. You know, the kind of the expectations is a number in the low 60s, like 61 and a half, uh, which would be, you know, consistent with last month. So still at a very elevated level. Just for historical context, to get an ISM above 60, you know, over the past 50 years, that's happened like, you know, less than 5% of the time. So this is very strong economic data that we're seeing. Uh, it, it's consistent with just all evidence showing the economy is really kind of, you know, on a very strong momentum at this point in time with second quarter GDP tracking around 9%. On Friday, we'll get the jobs number. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that you see, you know, the Fed and even I think investors were expecting a million jobs per month created in the second quarter. Those expectations have been dialed back. You know, the April jobs number of 266,000 was well below expectations. I think as a result, it sort of tamped down expectations for May, which is now around 650,000. You know, the labor market continues to recover, but uh, there's still signs of, you know, of, of not maybe as fast as, as investors expected, and there's, you know, questions why. Um, but, you know, still, you know, strong, you know, good data overall, but not quite what was expected beforehand. Uh, and then next week, in terms of the inflation numbers, it's still likely to be very high. In fact, it's probably going to be even higher than it was last month. So headline CPI came out to be 4.2% last month. This time it could be upwards of, you know, 45 to 5%. Um, but it also sort of marks what's likely to be the peak in this cycle. So we'll see a bit of moderation once we get to June numbers in early July and then kind of, you know, there, there, thereafter. So we could see that right now we are now at kind of peak inflation. Um, that doesn't mean the number won't be a kind of surprise and it will further fuel these inflation concerns. But I think we're in, in the eye of the hurricane in terms of the inflation numbers overall. Uh, in terms of what the market's expecting, I think now it's kind of braced for this information. And it was interesting to see, you know, early last week, we did some commentary about investors, you know, you know what they're seeing in the markets, suggest that they are in this kind of peak inflation kind of idea that, yes, inflation will be very high, but the worst of it is materializing. We're seeing some numbers that were shockingly high earlier on, like such as lumber prices, already pulling back 20% from their highs. Again, sort of kind of supporting the notion that we're at peak inflation. So, you know, a jobs number that's better than expected on Friday, that will be good. Inflation data next week that is, you know, not expiring to the upside. I think the market will take that as a sign of, of relief and that um, we are at the peak inflation. So all of that, I think, is kind of supportive for the market. Things that are worse, job numbers that are lower than expected, inflation that are higher, I mean, that sort of just reaffirms the concerns that uh, that people had a few weeks ago in terms of, you know, growth not as good as we expected, higher inflation, and what does that mean for Fed policy? Um, so I think that's 
stuff like that, that will be negatively reacting to the market. If it's in line with expectations, I think that's a positive sign for the market. Okay, so Jason, as we begin to close out our conversation, taking this all together, taking a quick inventory, we've covered everything from monetary policy, fiscal policy, the possible path forwards there, as well as some notable economic data points set to be released starting today through the month of June. So there's a lot to take into account, a lot to digest from an investor's point of view. In context to a portfolio allocation, Jason, how should investors be positioning here at this time? Yeah, so for tactically, I think we still think the reflation trade uh, has more room to run. You know, this is what sort of worked by and large in, in, in May, but also really kind of year to date. So we think about where there's, you know, relatively more attractive upside at the point of time in equities. It's in, you know, kind of value stocks. It's in some of the more cyclical stocks that I mentioned, like financials and energy. Uh, we still see some upside in small caps that have, you know, you know had a better the past couple of weeks. Uh, still see upside XUS and emerging markets now in, in Japan. And the reason are going to continue to kind of catch up as the rest of the world sort of vaccinates and sort of opens up in a way that the U.S. has over the past couple of months. Uh, we still see upside in commodities, particularly in oil and base metals, uh, as, again, benefiting from, you know, the global economy sort of being very strong for this year and into next year, uh, consistent with kind of this reflation argument. Uh, rates, you know, being sort of much, fairly range-bound for the near term, gradually rising as the as the year goes on into around, if you take the 10-year, up to about 2% by year-end. So, you know, positive story for risk markets overall. Um, there is a possibility, you know, depending on how the data plays out, the markets can you kind of, you know, melt up. Uh, but I think it's, you know, important to sort of have diversification because we could be wrong about inflation, which is kind of why we like commodities. It does well if inflation tends to exceed. Um, some of these other parts of the world, like XUS, we like because I think some of the challenges the U.S. economy might face in the near term aren't as prevalent overseas. So international diversification is another way to can also hedge against some of these risks. So overall, I think a positive story. But make sure you're sort of diversified and generally can still position for this reflation create to materialize. Well, Jason, very helpful, very productive conversation to begin the week and the month of June. And as I mentioned, Jason, do look forward to following up on these topics with you in the coming weeks and tracking the market response to them. But greatly appreciate the insights this morning, Jason, as well as the guidance on portfolio allocation. I wish you a nice week ahead and we'll look forward to catching back up on top of the morning again with you soon. All right. Thank you, Dan. Have a great week. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Now for clients of UBS, You can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about the topics that we've covered on top of the morning today, or if you would like to receive a copy of any of the publications or blogs directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.